Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fifth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the impact of the sexual revolution, the death of civility, the meaning of evolution, the question of why some countries succeed and others fail, and the effect of the digital world on our brains. The United Kingdom has a new Prime Minister, and for the first time in its history, that Prime Minister is a Hindu. Rishi Sunak is, to be clear, a practising Hindu. He is a regular attendee at Temple. He swore his oath of allegiance on the Bhagavad Gita when elected as an MP. And he placed lit candles outside his door at number 11 Downing Street for Diwali when he was Chancellor. What, if any, impact his religion will have on his premiership is, of course, unknown. But what we can say with some certainty is that Sunak is not the first sincerely religious British Prime Minister of modern times. Indeed, if we go back a 100 years or so, say to the beginning of the 20th century, it's striking how many British Prime Ministers have done God, to adopt Alistair Campbell's famous phrase, or at least how many have talked about doing God. So, how many? How religious have Prime Ministers of our modern secularising age been? Or, perhaps more pointedly, how genuinely religious have they been? And what, if any difference, has their faith made to their politics? Mark Vickers studied history and law before becoming a parish priest in London. And his new book, God in Number 10, examines, as it says in the subtitle, the personal faith of Prime Ministers from Balfour to Blair. Mark, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thanks, Nick. You cover 19 Prime Ministers in your book, and while it's tempting to go through all of them, I think it might be more helpful if we were to try and group them and then to see what kind of conclusions we draw. So let's attempt a kind of ranking in spiritually ascending order of 20th century (laughs) Prime Ministers and start with those who rank amongst the least religious of our times. Which ones had little or no interest in or feeling for God or organised religion? Good question. So there are prime ministers who had little belief, but that didn't necessarily mean that they had little interest in God. So towards the bottom, if that's what we're going to call it, so if you would have someone like Andrew Bonner-Lawes of the Conservative Prime Minister, 1922-23. So Ulster Scott's background... I think, a practical atheist, certainly after the death of his wife and two of his children. Someone else I would class as a practical atheist, the Labour Prime Minister Clement Attlee, 1945-51. to It doesn't mean he wasn't interested in religion. He was fascinated by the process of appointing bishops, which for a practical atheist is slightly extraordinary. Someone else I think would have been a practical atheist, but talks a lot about his Baptist upbringing in his memoirs, is Jim Callaghan from the 1970s. So I think that's your base point, if you want, in terms of those with the least interest in faith. Yes. Although, as you rightly say, even those who have little interest in faith Mm. are inevitably entangled. I love the quote from Clement Attlee when asked by an interviewer his attitude to these things. Mm. Believe in the ethics, don't believe in the mumbo-jumbo. That was blunt. You wouldn't get a a leader saying (laughs) that today. But the Christian Mm. ethics in which they grew up, even for Mm. these unbelieving prime ministers, is really important, isn't it? 
And that's the interesting thing. Even for the unbelievers, they all grew up in Christian backgrounds, they imbibed Christian belief, they sort of understood the Christian ethical system. Someone like Athley, yes, and he was quite explicit, even when he rejected the doctrine, he held on to the ethical system. He was a fundamentally moral man, so he was from a, a devoutly Anglican background, he grew up in suburban Putney, his brother was a vicar, so his sister was a missionary sister in South Africa. It mattered to him. And Attlee, like a number of prime ministers, particularly of the left in the 20th century, almost found politics as their spiritual calling. And I don't really mean that loosely. I mean as a way in which they could bring about gospel imperatives through the political process. Mm. Yeah, and that's true from the beginnings of the first Labour Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald. He would say that socialism was the ethical development of Christianity, so socialism was the new religion. He began preaching in ethical chapels. We tend to forget that there were these chapels which rejected the doctrine almost completely, but they still gathered to sing hymns, to come together to worship, so to expound an ethical system. He moved on slightly to Unitarianism, but I didn't think there was a huge difference between these ethical chapels and mm. Unitarianism. You get Athley very explicitly saying that in the UK, at least, socialism had emerged from a very religious context. He had put religions of both nonconformism, Catholicism, Anglicanism as amongst the deepest influences of the British Labour Party. You would have Harold Wilson's a generation later saying exactly the same thing, that Methodism was more important than Marxism in the development of the Labour Party. So very much so, yes. And that's a critical difference between British parties of the left or British yes. Labour Party and continental parties of the left, isn't it? That the latter often drew on some quite anti-religious wellsprings, whereas British Labour Party, as you say, yes. deeply religious in many ways. And there was an issue for religious leaders as well. I don't cover it in the book. It was a big issue for the Catholic Church after the First World War. There were very anti-religious, anti-clerical socialist parties emerging in Europe. And there was a lot of pressure on the Catholic Church in the UK to condemn the Labour Party. And fortunately, we had an archbishop cardinal at the time who was sufficiently sensible to say, no, we're different. So we have a social democratic party here, not a Marxist socialist party. Mm. You mentioned that Attlee had quite a um, strict and conventional Anglican upbringing. And there's another category, I think, of 20th century prime ministers who were formed in quite intense religious backgrounds. Well, you have Attlee, you mentioned Callaghan. I guess David Lloyd George would be the, the supreme one there. Tell us a bit about how that furnace of religious fervent in their youth shapes them. Yes. So one of the conclusions of the book is that Surprisingly, the prime ministers move in the opposite direction to the population as a whole. So Britain indisputably became a more secular country in the course of the 20th century. That's not true of the prime ministers, with the exception of uh, Stanley Baldwin, who was more or less a conventional Anglican. The prime ministers of the first half of the century were either sceptics or bonkers, uh, dabbling in spiritualism. <laughs> they became much more religious as the century went on from Harold Macmillan onwards. I tried to understand why that was the case, and there are various reasons, but one of the reasons we tend to forget is how dreadful the Victorian Puritanical Sunday really was. And yes. a, num a number of them loathed it, and that would be particularly true of Asquith and his successor, David Lloyd George, both brought up in fervently nonconformist backgrounds. Asquith, a Congregationist, David Lloyd George, effectively brought up by his uncle, who was a Baptist preacher in North Wales. They were in chapels several times a day, 
anything enjoyable, the theatre, cars was absolutely forbidden. And they reacted badly against it. Mm. Both of them said that they feared the prospect of heaven more than they feared the prospect of hell because their <laughs> vision of heaven for Asquith was a West Yorkshire chapel, for Lloyd George was a Welsh Baptist chapel, endless hymns, endless preaching, and not being allowed to escape chapel at the end of the day. Even then, though, there is this fascinating influence that that particular strict and, let's be honest, sometimes rather drab chapel upbringing yes. could have, particularly in Lloyd George's case, which was oratory, wasn't it? You had that lovely line in there, you quoting English preachers don't know how to speak. Yes. And, and he learned how to speak and he deployed it. He loved preaching and he loved hymns. So, uh, And it's true, a lot of the prime ministers, they would judge their experience of church or chapel basically on the quality of the preaching, on the quality of the music. There was little evaluation of the doctrine. There's not actually, to be frank, that much evaluation of the social outreach. It, it was singing and it was preaching. Mm. I want to ask about providentialism, because there are certain prime ministers, I mean, very obviously Churchill, but possibly also Campbell Bannerman, who have a trust in God in a kind of very loose providential sense. And I guess if you found your way to the top job, you're going to be inclined to believe in some kind of destiny or providence, aren't you? So tell me what role providential belief played among these prime ministers. You can see it in some of the prime ministers, and one or two of their friends' comments were, if you're that kind of person, if you're fixated on power, there's a temptation to see that you're the instrument of something greater, you're an instrument of the divine, and you need to be very careful. Churchill did have that sense of being preserved by providence, and it would be providence, and it would be what he called fate. It wasn't the Christian gods, mm. you need to remember that. He saw himself as being protected during the Boer War, and that's almost the only time in his adult life where there's any sense of prayer life, any sense of contact with a Christian god. It is very important to emphasise that because there have been more than one attempt by sort of American yes, evangelicals yeah. to claim <laughs> Churchill for yeah. their side. And that's really not very convincing, is it? it? It doesn't hang together at all. I think people make the mistake of listening to Churchill during the war where he talked about the defence of Christendom. Churchill was too good a historian to realise that Western civilization didn't owe so many of its values to Christianity. He knew that as a historian. He wasn't talking as a theologian or a believer when he was saying that. The problem is some of these Americans pick that up and think, ah, oh, well, Church was obviously a very devout Christian, very devout Anglican. He wasn't. So but he made no pretense to be, and Church was very honest about his lack of belief. So it was belief in fate for him. But there are other people who, again, very much saw themselves as God's instrument, and Stanley Baldwin uses that term, and he sees himself as in the hands of God. And he wasn't a politician, he wasn't partisan, so he basically inherited his father's seat in Worcestershire, so that's how he ended up in the Commons. And he thought, what on earth am I doing here? I don't enjoy politics, I don't enjoy the House of Commons. And then he has what he calls a spiritual awakening during the First World War. He says, I found my soul. Uh, I've been chosen by God for a job in politics. And he saw his job in politics as purifying the corruption the political corruption he saw was introduced to the system by Lord George, the sale of political honours and other things, and also what he describes as a ministry of healing between social classes and in industry. And there's, I think, a lot more humility on the part of Baldwin. He really does see himself as an instrument in God's hands there to be used. So Baldwin wasn't stupid. He saw that talking about faith was actually quite helpful. The 
Metropolitan elites were very suspicious of Baldwin. One of his cabinet colleagues got very upset. He said, oh, he goes to political meetings in Cornwall. He talked to them about John Wesley rather than about political issues. You get the Financial Times saying that Stanley Baldwin is the first revivalist preacher Mm. produced by the Tory party, and we very much hope that he's the last. It didn't seem to do him too much harm at the polls, and I think it was one of the reasons why the Conservative Party was able to attract a lot of those former liberal voters, the the chapel goers. And he'd say quite explicitly, if I didn't feel that I was advancing the kingdom of God, I would resign my office immediately. Mm. Can't see that coming from any 21st century prime (laughs) minister at the moment. (laughs) No, but it's interesting, isn't it? You get Gordon Brown, who after he left office, says, I deeply regret not bringing my strong religious beliefs into the public square as vice prime minister. He said... People can't understand who we are if we leave our values, which are formed in many cases by faith, at the door of Downing Street or the House of Commons. And it was one of his deepest regrets that he didn't talk more about his faith. Mm. Well, I I want to come back right at the end of the 21st century and and last 20 years or so, because there is this fascinating moment of believing prime ministers who then can't really can't talk about it, as opposed to 100 years earlier where you have non-believing prime ministers who who have to be public in their kind of church going. I'm not sure that's entirely true. Again, Asquith, it was no one else's business what he believed. And they didn't expect their religious beliefs to be picked up by the press. It wasn't. So, no, they didn't feel a need to be explicitly religious. Mm. The fact that a number of them in the mid-20th century weren't churchgoers, weren't chapelgoers at all. It didn't Mm. matter. The public didn't know, the public weren't expected to know, and it didn't harm their electoral chances. So was your sense that we've become a bit more intrusive as a public into the minds and hearts and souls of our leaders? I think that's certainly true, yes. With mixed results, I think it's not a bad thing to want to know who the whole person is. We don't just want Mm. a persona... We didn't just want sound bites. And I think the British public want authenticity. It can obviously become too intrusive and too unforgiving at, at certain points. But mm. I think knowing the whole person is not a bad thing. There is an irony there, though, isn't it? In our hunger, our thirst to find out the true leader, we inadvertently create an environment in which leaders like Brown, who you talk about, actually feel reluctant to reveal their true selves mm. for fear of what it might do to them electorally. Exactly. And we've got to be honest with ourselves and say, if we want the full person, then, okay, let's accept that. We want to know everything and everything is acceptable until there's something which is not acceptable to us and we're remarkably unforgiving. I want to ask a side question here, which really interests me. We often, or sometimes at least, see the ages we look back on as shaped by certain prime ministers. There's an inevitability to that, particularly successful ones who've been in office for a long time. But what struck me, particularly in the early 20th century, was how much, when it comes to beliefs like this, our political leaders actually simply reflected what was in the zeitgeist. So you mentioned the Ethical Union, who were kind of organisations mm. for people in late Victorian Edwardian Britain who lost their faith. You mentioned Unitarianism, which we don't hear much of today. You mentioned Spiritualism, which was huge around the time of the First World War. And you mentioned the Eugenics Movement, which obviously we look yes. on with horror now, but was popular in the early part of the 20th century and supported by a number of prime ministers. A lot of the time, they're just kind of absorbing and reflecting the age in which they live, aren't they? Up to a point, and reflecting the educated political classes, they're not reflecting the population as a whole. So the population as a whole 
were still largely Christian. They may not have gone to church or chapel every Sunday. The prime ministers didn't reflect that as a whole. They were far more sceptical as a class. They were far more open to influences such as German biblical scholarship, which they felt had undermined these intellectual foundations of Christianity. They were more open to some of these fringe movements like uh, eugenics, which I don't think the British public supported. It was very much mm. a white middle class preserve. And similarly, spiritualism as well. You remark at one point, for a generation demanding rational proof of Christianity, it was surprisingly credulous when it came to the paranormal. That's true. And uh, again, it surprised me how many of them were involved in spiritualism. They felt that belief in the resurrection was no longer credible and yet they still wanted to believe in personal survival for their loved ones after death. So they turned elsewhere. They, they turned to the ghost world. Balfour was having seances in Downing Street. Mm. Clem Attlee's wife had a seance in Downing Street. Ramsay MacDonald was heavily mixed up with spiritualism. Yes. It was very prevalent because there's a real sadness. People didn't feel a sense of liberation once they moved away from Christianity. They felt that they'd lost something precious and they were looking for it elsewhere and Quite a few of them turned to spiritualism. Well, let's move on to the more spiritually engaged prime ministers of the last part of the 20th century. And I kind of divided the post-war prime ministers, excepting those that we've spoken about, into two categories. There are those who are sincerely, but if you like, unostentatiously religious. And into that category, I would have put Alec Douglas Hume, Harold Wilson and Edward Heath. And then there are those who are intensely and sometimes publicly, very publicly engaged in religious matters, Macmillan, Thatcher, Blair. Now, is that a fair division? I think it's a fair division. I'm not sure I'd agree with where you've placed Macmillan. I think you're right, there's an intense belief that it wasn't public. He got his fingers badly burnt as a young man. He had a real spiritual crisis as to where he belonged, whether it was the Church of England or the Catholic Church. And it's probably not an exaggeration to say that he came close to a breakdown. And I think after that, he was very, very private about his belief, but very sincere. Mm. And Alec Douglas Hume, you end the chapter with him with a lovely line. I can't remember who you're quoting, but don't search for an enigma. There isn't an enigma. I would have no hesitation in saying that Alec Douglas Hume was the most decent man to occupy Downing Street, which is maybe why he didn't last very long. I think <laughs> rather. He grew up in a very Christian home. As you, you rightly say, he's uncomplicated. But he had a deep spiritual awakening. I think he had tuberculosis of the spine, which prevented him fighting during the Second War. And he was actually in encased in plaster for two or three years during the Second War. It really caused him to evaluate his belief systems. So it gave him a sense of the goodness of God, the need for humanities. Surprisingly, he was great friends with Billy Graham. So you had this Scottish aristocrat and Billy Graham, <laughs> great friends. Uh, there's another amusing scenario that one of the last meetings that Churchill had in Downing Street was with Billy Graham, this young Kansan farm boy evangelist, trying to ignite a spark of faith in Churchill, but failing. Didn't work, did it? No. Uh, <laughs> and the man who succeeds Douglas Hume is particularly interesting, Harold Wilson, mm. Labour Prime Minister between 64 and 1970. Now, he is very well known as a Prime Minister because he presides over one of the most influential and certainly most liberalising government in the 20th century. He has a Congregationalist background, I think. Mm. It's a chapel background anyway. He's highly influenced by the Scout movement. So it's in his blood. And yet, I guess because of the government and the swinging 60s and everything he's associated with, he's not normally placed in the category of believers. But 
He is, isn't he? He would place himself in the category of believers. You're absolutely right. He had an upbringing in Baptist and Congregationist chapels. He was in chapel every Sunday as an undergraduate at Oxford. I think that continued to some extent after he moved to London. I think the problem with Wilson is he was a workaholic. Everything gave way to work and politics, and his spiritual life was less developed after that point. He would always say that he remained a Christian. I think it was the Sunday Express that was running a series in the early 1960s, Why I'm a Christian, and Quinton Hogg, uh, Lord Hailsham, wrote a very eloquent piece on behalf of the Conservative Party, and Wilson said he looked up and down the front bench of the Labour Party and thought, <laughs> my goodness, um, I better do this myself, I can't tr- yes. trust anyone else. There's not much practice there, but it just does inform things. And I think you're right, it informs his reaction to the social reforms of the 1960s. And he doesn't say that much, which is interesting. He hardly covers it at all in his memoirs and his history of that 1964-70 to government, even though most people look back and say this was one of the most important series of legislative theses. He hardly mentions it. And again, interestingly, he manages to absent himself on most of those votes on the issues such as abortion, divorce reform, homosexuality. He's simply not around. He doesn't comment. People have drawn the conclusion that from his nonconformist background, he was uneasy. And some of his cabinet colleagues say this in their memoirs, that Harold Wilson was deeply uncomfortable with some of those liberal social reforms. Let's move on to the two biggest beasts, if I can put it that way, when it comes to religious commitment, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. Margaret Thatcher famously has a deeply Christian upbringing. Mm. Blair doesn't at all. Mm. Both of them remain not only within the fold, but fascinated by, shaped by, influenced by, absorbed by Christian faith. Can you compare Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair in their beliefs? With difficulty. As you say, they came from different backgrounds. Different things on the whole motivated them. So Margaret Thatcher is very much the moral aspect of faith. Her father was a Methodist lay preacher. Margaret Thatcher was a lay preacher as an undergraduate at Oxford. She believed in the doctrine, uh, but it was very much its moral applications, how it was going to make people's lives better, how it was going to get them on, to some extent how it was going to support her Thatcherite uh, agenda in Mm. the 1980s. There's a sadness there with her because I think she wanted to engage. People see her as this abrasive figure. There were times she wanted to have a conversation. She didn't always help herself in the way that she went about it. (laughs) But she did try with the Anglican bishops. She got off to a bad start with their report, Faith in the City, which perceived as a critique of her Thatcherite economics and its effects on the northern industrial cities, on the working class. To be fair to her, she then invited them to checkers, invited them to lunch and said, well, let's talk about this. She wanted to talk about the Christian concept of freedom, humans being created in the image and likeness of God with uh, this capacity for free choice. The bishops wanted to talk about the imperative of love, love of God and love of neighbour. And you just think that ships passing each other in the night, that they haven't really engaged with each other. Tony Blair is coming from a different position, not such a strong family beliefs. There was Christianity there in the background. He went to the choir school at Durham Cathedral. There was faith there in the background at his school at Fetters in Edinburgh. It comes to life at Oxford when he meets this charismatic Anglican Peter Thompson, who really shows him how faith connects with social action, with community. And that really excites him. And he'll say quite explicitly that he's more interested in religion than he is in politics. Uh, And again, that makes 
most people uncomfortable, not least yes, Alistair Campbell, we don't do God. But he'd be very upfront about the fact that prayer was important to him. He prays daily, he reads scripture regularly. Fascinating, very touching sort of insights. He notices that Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi, on the way back from Israel, from the funeral of one of the Israeli prime ministers, has brought out the scriptures and a Bible commentary, the Old Testament. And Blair asks for and is given an exegesis on the Old Testament. (laughs) You have Jonathan Sachs there, sat between Tony Blair, the prime minister, and Prince Charles on the other side, giving them a Bible class. But it didn't stop there. So Jonathan Sachs says that when he returned to Downing Street to talk about other matters... Blair would ask him to stay afterwards and they'd have Bible discussion after their their official meetings. I guess the biggest question here is also the hardest question here because there is no clear causality in any of this. But the reason why we're so fascinated, particularly recently, with the faith and the deep beliefs of our leaders is because we want to know the extent to which they influence their politics. Yeah. Do you have any sense of which prime ministers, their public lives, their policies, were most influenced by their religious faith? Without a doubt, Stanley Baldwin. I I think there's no question that uh, his policies, his style of premiership was influenced by his strong Christian faith. With the others, it's a question of cross-fertilisation to some extent. I have no doubt that Thatcher's politics were influenced by her Methodist upbringing, by her veneration of her father. And then it's difficult for us, and I suppose it's difficult for her, to separate out what characteristics of her father derive from his Methodist faith and what characteristics derive from his conservative beliefs. Mm-hmm. And you can't to some extent. I suppose the same is true with Blair. There's a strong evangelical faith there, which I think has persisted, despite the fact he's converted to Catholicism, a sense of an unmediated uh, relationship with God. There are policies, I think, where you can say, specifically, this has been affected by their particular beliefs. So Tony Blair intervened on the question of faith schools. There was a, Mm -hmm. a point at which there was a cap proposed for pupils from a particular denomination, and Blair got involved, probably uh, making himself quite unpopular with elements of the Labour Mm. Party. I think you can say that specifically as a result of his faith. On the whole, it's less clear. On the whole, it's a much more general thing. It's It formed the people they were, and it provided their motivation for going into public life in the first place, rather than necessarily affecting their specific policies. Mm. Let's close by looking very briefly at the 21st century, where we've had a whirlwind of prime ministers (laughs) only recently. I mentioned in my introduction, we now have Rishi Sunak, the first practising Hindu prime minister. Before him, momentarily, we had Liz Truss. Boris Johnson was called the first Catholic prime minister. I'll just leave that one hanging in the air, as it were. (laughs) Theresa May was a sincere Anglican. David Cameron is a conventional Anglican. And then before him, you have Gordon Brown, as we mentioned. Do you notice any trends, direction of travel, any lessons that you would pick out from recent prime ministers? Well, the conclusion of my book was that the prime ministers went in an opposite direction of travel to the British population as a whole. In the 20th century, they became more orthodox, believing Christians, as the country as a whole became more secular. And having written the conclusion before Uh, all the recent shenanigans, uh, I said that's the continued direction of travel. 
people who worked with the prime ministers of the late 20th, early 21st century said that Gordon Brown was one of the most religious prime ministers. He really wanted to engage with the ideas. David Cameron, I think his faith is more important to him than people would necessarily give him credit for. He is a believing, practicing Christian. And interestingly, I think, I haven't done the research, I think you might find that decisions which were taken or not taken, which influenced by his Christian faith. Theresa May, as you say, very much a believing, practicing Anglican. Boris is, as ever, sewer generous. <laughs> he's challenged, he's been challenged in an interview and say, come on, Boris, you're just a pre-Christian pagan, aren't you? And he says, no, I'm a very, very, very bad kind of Christian. Mm. You might say, well, come on, show us the applications. It's not just about signing up to a set of doctrines or intellectual principles. Where does that apply in your life? He was asked by Robert Peston at the G7 summit after his marriage in Westminster Cathedral. Peston says to him, so are you a practicing Catholic now? And rather harshly, Boris puts him down and said, I don't answer such deep questions, particularly with people like you. And not surprisingly, surprisingly, Peston comes back and says, what's the problem? Keir Starmer is quite happy to admit that he's an atheist. What's the problem? And Boris immediately is able to quote back the Psalms and said, it is the foolish man who says in his heart that there is no God. So he's got the vocabulary, he's got some understanding, but you'd say, where's the application? Liz Truss, I don't know enough about. I think during her campaign, she said, yes, there was Anglican influences in her formation. But now we've got a person of faith again in Mm. in Downing Street. Interestingly, I think up until the 1990s, the political establishment could deal with a sceptic agnostic in Downing Street. That didn't give them too much problems, despite their role in the appointment of Anglican bishops. I think it's fair to say up until the 1990s, it was difficult to conceive possibly of a Catholic, certainly a believing non-Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim in Downing Street. That's changed, obviously. Rishi Sunak's Hinduism doesn't really seem to have any impact on his leadership campaign for the Conservative Party. You now Mm. have a Hindu in Downing Street who says, I'm a man of faith. That provides my strength, my purpose. He's upfront about that. Mm. It does strike me, certainly since the Blair years, there was a kind of an inverse correlation between media coverage and prime ministers. Blair, Brown, to some extent May, didn't talk about their sincere faith because everybody knew it really mattered to them. Mm. Cameron could talk about his faith because no one thought it mattered or at least nothing like (laughs) as much. Mm. And I kind of wonder if that's a slightly unhealthy dynamic, really, because actually, if these people do believe, we don't want them to be too scared to talk about it in public. Mm. I wonder whether deep down the problem here is less with prime ministers, whether they believe or not, but with us as electorate and our willingness to hear strong, sometimes quite alien religious beliefs coming from the lips of our leaders. I think there are two reasons that explain Prime Minister's reluctance to speak about faith. The first is the unwillingness to alienate people who don't share those beliefs. And I think they exaggerate that because you've got someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg who, again, love him or hate him. I don't think the fact that he's upfront about having a specific set of Catholic beliefs harms his electoral appeal. I think Prime Ministers could learn from that. And I think there's a greater desire for authenticity on the part of Mm. the British electorate than Prime Ministers would necessarily give them credit for. The second thing is, and it's only true of the Prime Ministers I studied, 
there was a real desire not to appear to be hypocrites. They didn't want to be seen to be preaching one thing and practicing another. So you get Margaret Thatcher, who's not normally held up as a paragon of humility, but she'd say, yes, religion, my Christian faith is very, very important to me, but I measure myself by my imperfections, and that's how I measure myself in terms of faith. I think people would be surprised, but the prime ministers are actually quite humble when it comes to their faith. The book is called God in Number 10, The Personal Faith of the Prime Ministers from Balfour to Blair. Mark Vickers, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you, Nick. Next week, I'll be speaking to Michael Keane about his book, Rebellion, Rascals and Revenue, Tax Follies and Wisdom Through the Ages. I guess the most eccentric example is in Mughal, India where there was apparently a governor who decided to punish tax offenders by making them wear leather trousers and putting cats down in their trousers. Which I think, for creativity, I mean, why not? You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the Think Tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes from the series and the previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.